the Purpose Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. We're all about delivering great content, thoughtful discussions, and tips and tricks to help you truly get the most out of your life and business. And here's your charismatic host, me, Matt Browning. Welcome back. It's your host, Matt Browning. I am so, so excited for this week, for the second episode of the week about the new book. Um, So welcome, first off, wherever you are watching this, listening to this, streaming this. uh, Thank you for for doing that. Thank you for being a part of this community. And I hope uh, it's it's always fun. I, I, I never take it for granted that I get to be in your car with you. I get to be at the gym with you. Maybe some of you I'm in bed with you. That that sounded weird, but you know, you fall asleep. Uh, I like to fall asleep to podcasts. So I just want to thank you for letting me in your life and, uh, and, and, you know, bringing what I bring to the table. So this week, what we started with, if you haven't heard uh, the episode from a few days ago, um, go back and listen to it. It dropped Tuesday morning. And I did the big reveal on our new book coming out, The Firebox Principle, The Seven Drives That Fuel Every Entrepreneur. So that is a really, really exciting time for me, but also for you, um, because I have been... I've been looking at this these this firebox principle and what the book is all about, and I explained all of it in the episode uh, f- a few days ago. So go back and watch it, listen to it. It's on Facebook. Um, you can find it at mattbrawning.com. Uh, sorry, not. Uh, you can find it at facebook.com slash mattbrawning. And you can also, of course, just grab it from the mattbrawningpodcast.com site, and you can make sure you subscribe while you're there, feel free to rate and review on iTunes. Uh, sure would appreciate it if you haven't done that yet. Man, please help me out with that. Let's get into the episode, though. This week, today, I get to air an interview, which I think is really timely and really relevant for the book. So uh, I told you in the episode a few days ago that for the next several weeks, or the next three weeks, technically, uh, I'm going to be doing an episode. Every single episode is going to be on one of the seven drives that are inside the book. So you're going to get... Um, the inside look in the pre-release of the book and all the information about it. You have a ton of fun with that. And then you'll have a chance in July when it comes out uh, to grab the ebook and to help me hit bestseller if you'd like to do that. But no obligation. Just because you listen to this podcast, you can still get all the information and not spend the 99 cents. It's not a big deal. Uh, But I'll let you know when that comes out. So what I wanted to do after the first overview is I wanted to bring in a, one, I'm only going to do one interview for the next month. Everything else is going to be on the seven drives. But I wanted to bring in right away an interview with Larry Broughton. Larry has become a, a very dear friend of mine over the last several years. He is a, just a phenomenal human being. I'm going to tell you about him in a minute. But I asked him, uh, I thought, I want to have someone write a forward to the book. And I started thinking of all the people that I knew, had access to, and, and even, you know, my dream list of people that I hadn't, I've never met before. And the first person I thought of, and the last person, was Mr. Larry Broughton, uh, a phenomenal human being. He's done amazing work in the entrepreneur field and the veterans work he does. Um, there's so much to him. I thought it would be great for him to be the person. So he has graciously accepted, and he's written the foreword for the book. So I thought I'd like to air my interview with Larry Broughton this week so you get to know him. And then when you read the foreword in the book, you can get a better idea of what he's about. So um, quick pre-frame though, and you got to bear with me on something. Uh, I tried out a new set of equipment for the interview. Oh, I cannot believe it. On, uh, I, I plugged in our, my microphone into the camera in, in kind of a different way. And 
the mic went hot really often. So um, I know it'll be an, a little bit annoying at first. I totally get it. But as we're going through the interview, there'll be parts where it kind of it pops and it buzzes a little bit. So I know it's cringy. I hate listening to things like that. But if you bear with me, it's a really, really, really good interview. We get into his life. Uh, we get into his military background. He's a um, Let me tell you about Larry. He's a former Green Beret Special Forces. And he didn't just go into the Army. He went directly into the Green Berets. Uh, he, you know, he studied Russian at the Defense Language Institute uh, in military for a long time. We get into, you know, a lot of things he doesn't talk about all the time. We get into his family, into growing up, what it was like. Um, he mentions and talks about uh, going through a divorce, what it's like to raise his kids now. Emily and Ben, we talk about them a little bit. Um, and, and some of the some of the dark times too. You know, he'll he shares a story about when things were kind of crashing down around him in the hotel industry. Uh, and he was losing a lot of money and, and it really, really got stressful, you know, what he turned to, which is really negative. He'll share that story. And then also how he got back out of that. So he's very honest, very raw and authentic with his story. And um, what I love about Larry is he's, he's super, uh, again, open with his faults and his strengths. You know, I say never trust a leader without a limp. And Larry is a strong man, but he also shares his limps with us. Um, not only that, but we even get a little bit into his, uh, his stints on Hotel Impossible on the Travel Channel. So he's been a featured expert there many, many times. Uh, he's been on C uh, MSNBC constantly. And I asked him about his media and how did he book the media. And the, his question or his answer uh, shocked me. It wasn't what I expected. So um, you'll find that and more. And we talk about his new book, Victory, Seven Revolutionary Strategies for Entrepreneurs. Uh, to grow their businesses. So uh, you can find out more about Larry and his book and all of everything in the show notes that you need. But without any further ado, again, I want to ask, please bear with me on the sound. Uh, it's great most of the time, but there's different stints where we got a little too close to the mic with the new setup. Uh, I'm not doing that again. I'm changing it out. I have a new system coming out for interviews from this point forward. Um, but thank you for your grace, and it will be worthwhile to watch or listen through the entire interview. Mr. Larry Broughton, everyone. My friend. Hello. We are here again. Dude, how are you? I'm awesome. Thanks. Awesome. It's Man, good to see you. It's good to see you too. Thanks. It's good to see you too. I, yeah. I feel like every few months we get a chance to be in the same room together. Yeah, and Not enough. Not enough. Every time though, I'm, I'm always taken back and very, very grateful that I actually, I don't know, I kind of feel like I snuck in. You know, like I, like I snuck in the room with Larry Broughton. I get, I get to be here. <laughs> I really do, man. You're just, you're, you're such an incredible human being, oh, um, an amazing mentor, and, and calling you a friend as well. Yeah. Um, you, you've spoken on my stage many times. Yeah, it's, uh, that's been awesome. And, and the most recent thing that I'm really excited about is I asked you if you would uh, be willing to write a forward to my new book, and you said yes. Oh so man, that's I owe coming you an apology, out. dude. Yeah. No, no, you don't. We're in the middle of that now. We're there's. A plenty of stuff doing this the book, afternoon but. i promise <laughs> <laughs> i just want to say thank you for uh, oh, being willing pleasure. to do that yeah and, uh, I, I can't wait to see it I, I cannot wait well here's the thing um you know this this quote gets way overused it's by jim Rohn. you know that uh, you become the average of the five people you hang out with the most yeah and i've told you this publicly i've said this on your stage that you're one of the good guys that's out there there's a lot of quote-unquote gurus that are in the space trying to make an impact in the world. And at the end of the day, when you pull back the curtain, too often, sadly, it's all about them. Right. They're, they have this message of serving others, but it's not really. 
and that's not the impression I've ever got from you. Um, it's clearly not what uh, your tribe and followers say about you. So I feel blessed. You know, it's it, maybe it's uh, we have a mutual crush on each other, a man crush. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. You know, listen, we both learn from each other, right? I That's mean, awesome. You know, my business partner Dave and I have come over here. You yeah. know, we've hired you to help us uh, right? as it's well. True. And so it's. Um, I think that you know we're all on this journey. And um, if I can learn something from you, that's awesome. But uh, it's not just that. I love you. I think you're. I love your mm. mission here on Earth. So. Yeah, I love so you too. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, talk about iron sharpening iron. I suppose. Yeah, know? that's right. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's a good analogy. Right. Well, I want to. Uh, I want to get into kind of all things you mm. uh, in the open. Yeah, you know, I, I talk to them about. Um, you know, a ton of your background and you yeah. have amazing accolades and awards and, and experiences. But mm. what I really like to do on this podcast is, is dive into like the you behind the you, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and just, I mean, I don't know, like we, we've talked enough, but there's still, there's still, well, we never talked enough, yeah. uh, but there's still yeah. a lot of things I don't really, really know about you. So mm. um, okay. it's kind of want to start maybe in like growing up time. Sure. Uh, so w- what was it like growing Where did you grow up? What area were you yeah, in? Yeah, I grew up in a real small town in rural western New York, okay. uh, right just north of the Pennsylvania border, almost due south of Buffalo, a little town called Weston's Mills. It's an old wood mill town. Okay. When we went to the big city of Olean. Um, Which I've never time, heard of. No, of course not. <laughs> but that's um, the big city. That was the big city. It was about eighteen or 19,000 people. Wow. Um, great university there called St. Bonaventure University, though. Mm-hmm. I went to a school, a high school called Portville. But um, grew up on this little town called, or little road called Promise Land Road. Really? Great name for a for a, a little road, right? A little prophetic for your life. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, really kind of cow country, apple orchard kind of thing. On the outside, it looks like Mayberry RFD. I mean, just really small, bucolic uh, setting. And, um, you know, grew up in a large family. My father was a factory worker. Okay. Uh, my mother... Um, was he working yeah. long hours? Or was he, he was, home a lot? Uh, no, he, well, I wouldn't say he was home a lot. Okay. Worked a lot of hours. Um, but kind of, you know, it's a classic dysfunctional family. I don't, I have never met a family that's a, well, that's not true. I've met a, I've met a few families who you would consider functional. Sure. You know, Whatever. aren't most families dysfunctional? I mean, I got, I guess that breeds the question of like, is there such thing as functional? That's right. Or is there just humans adapting and being humans exactly yeah, that's where i'm know. going with all of this because we tend to take on this victim mentality mm. why this dysfunctional family and so because of that then don't hold me accountable for all the screw-ups i've had in my life you know we've right. lost track of personal accountability and if there is one lesson that i learned growing up was the whole thing about personal accountability there mm-hmm. are consequences for your actions right who taught you that my father yeah you know um and he was a strict disciplinarian you know, he was a Marine on Iwo Jima in World War II. Oh, wow. Um, so he was he was a stud, um, and uh, and he carried a lot of those, you know, unseen wounds that mm-hmm. uh, they used to call it uh, battle fatigue. Now they call it post-traumatic stress, right? Right. And, now it's uh, a syndrome, which is a very real and very difficult thing to deal with. It is. But, but back yeah. in the day, it I was like just... To use, yeah, yeah. It, well, right now they call it PTSD, and yeah. I'm one of these advocates. I want to get rid of the D. You know, yeah, post-traumatic disorder. stress disorder. It's not right. a disorder. It, you can be cured right. from this. You can be healed. Um, so anyway, anyway, it was a great setting. Um, so your father had some some struggles. He had some struggles, sure. After, after yeah. serving. Right. And, um, but, you know, I 
barely graduated high school, to be honest with you. Yeah. Most people think if they first meet me or they see my background and like these accolades, which I hate talking about, but it does give you a little bit of cred. Um, they think that I was this great student, and I wasn't. I barely graduated high school. Right. It what, turns out I'm dyslexic. What, what was the hardest uh, subject for you? Was it English or reading and writing? Or oh, just about everything. Um, <laughs> I, the form of, well, everything but PE. Well, everything but PE. Actually, PE was pretty rough too because really? I, used to, I used to be kind of a small little kid. Um, I'm kind of a mutant now, but it wasn't until like between my junior and senior year where I really sprouted up and kind of leaned into who I really was. So when you I, walked um, in, I always forget how tall you are, 6'5". Yeah. And yeah. Uh, just, a, just a specimen of a man. My oh, goodness. <laughs> or is he just call a mutant? <laughs> I'm a mutant. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. You could be LeBron, um, man. Come yeah. on. <laughs> but, um, you well, know, it was a, it was an interesting childhood. I guess, you know, the form of dyslexia that I've got, I look at a, a page full of numbers or letters and it just it's all a blur. To me, nothing really makes sense. Do they, like, what does it actually look like? Do they float around? Do they change positions? Or is it just sort of, there's no, like, My mind uh, can't comprehend it. Yeah, my mind just can't comprehend it or couldn't comprehend it. So I wasn't diagnosed until I went to the military. And then I had to learn how to actually read differently. And so you can train the brain. You you know this. You can change the the, the neural pathways in your your brain, right? And so that's why I had to... Had to work on. How old were you when you first uh, joined to serve? Nineteen. Nineteen. Is the yeah. army? Did yeah, it was right in the army. army. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so um, it was interesting in that um, sports got me through high school. I wasn't a great athlete. I was just a mediocre uh, athlete, though. But um, I was tenacious. Yeah. Um, I was co-captain of our wrestling team and co-captain of our you know soccer club and. But I was just a nice guy, really. That's kind of what got me got me through. So it was an uh, interesting setting. You know, I was a Boy Scout. and How far you did know, you go? Um, all the way. I was an Eagle Scout. I was an Order of the Arrow and got my the three palms. And, really? Yeah. So you are an Eagle Scout. Yeah. My dad was very clear. So I, I dropped out in junior high. Quitter. Oh, sorry. <laughs> did you say that out loud? <laughs> well, and, and feel free. You know, you know, you ever get a question on an interview and someone says, you know, do you have any regrets? And I, yeah. I think uh, usually no. And I think a lot of our mistakes made us who we are. But one, the, the one, maybe maybe there's two, but the one major regret is that I thought by eighth grade that scouting was lame. And I thought, yeah, oh, this is just, too. oh, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And I just stopped it. I think it was first class, almost going to star. Yeah. And I think, man, and I saw those kids that I knew, right, that continued on to life and Eagle. Yeah. And I thought, you guys are so lame. Yeah. And a couple of short years later, I thought, you are so full of perseverance. Well, I'll tell you, what I learned in Boy Scouts is really what helped me uh, past the the Q course, the qualification course to get into special forces. Really, it was those, you know, the leadership stuff. Yeah, that's the basic stuff about how to build a fire. Tie I was knot. surprised tie knots. All you you needed all that stuff because I was surprised at how many guys tried out for special forces that never even been camping, for instance. You wow. Know? So I was kind of blown away, blown away by that. So. And, uh, so anyway, so I was a Boy Scout, yes. And that's one of the things. I remember wanting to quit mm-hmm. uh, Boy Scouts for the same exact reasons. And my father said, no, you started it, you finished it. He saw the benefit and in it. That is the World War II vet thing coming mm-hmm. out. That's right. So, were, you, um, were you closer with your mom or your dad? I wasn't close with either, to be honest with you. Neither. Yeah, mm-hmm. I felt like I was on an island a little bit. My twin, I've got so I had a twin brother um, who's just a freaking rock star and one of my heroes. Mm. We moved out uh, my parents' house when we were seventeen. We hadn't quite graduated from high school yet. 
got an apartment with my friend Jack Kincaid. Did, did you move out together with your brother yeah. and your friend? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So three or Jack? Three of us. Jack, Barry, and and Larry uh, got an apartment. Uh, <laughs> is it Barry and Larry really? Barry and Larry. That's awesome. <laughs> shout I'm, out I'm, to, I am in reaching range of you. Do not make fun of me. <laughs> hey, shout out to Barry Broughton. <laughs> Barry and Larry. He's a freaking stud. Yeah. So you guys should do a podcast together. Yeah. Actually, um, I'm about to launch a podcast, and he's on our top ten list. He's one of the first guys I want to get on there I because hope he's so. just. He's one of these guys that he also went to the military, was a medic, became a physician's assistant and, you know, did orthopedic surgery kind mm-hmm. of stuff, got out of the military, became a naturopathic uh, physician after having his own or part of a clinic in the Colorado Springs and realized this is not what I'm, this is not my life. I'm living someone else's life. Um, and decided that he wanted to get back to his first love and that was martial arts. Really? Yeah. And so to turn did your back. Did you both back, do martial arts or just? Yeah, we both did. But he he was always better than, than I was in, what, what in martial arts. What kind of, what style? Yeah. Well, I started out with a style called Wu Yin Yang Jing, which is basically oh. an American, I mean, a, yeah, kind of an American style. Um, a blend. It looked very much, very similar to Taekwondo. Okay. Um, and so that's what we started in. I studied a bunch of different ones, but he really, he went nuts. And to the point now where he's in a bunch of different martial arts halls of fame, um, he's got a, he developed his own martial arts style. Really? And um, yeah, but to do this, you know, when you're in your, I don't know how many years it's been now, let's say in his 40s maybe, where he said, I'm not, I'm not going to do this medical stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back and do this full time to become a full time martial artist. Wow. And he's now internationally recognized. He was the um, assistant coach for the U.S. Uh, sport jiu-jitsu team that um, took gold at the World Games in Australia recently and is coach next on the next version he's just um he is now training with and in movies with people when we were younger were our freaking martial arts heroes like right. Cynthia Rothrock and um um I don't know just all kinds of amazing people so it's I love what he does where he said you know what this is my love and I'm yeah. gonna make it and he's happier now and making great amounts of money and really impacting future generations. That's outstanding. Because like like Boy Scouts, martial arts, you know, you learn how to learn. Right. You know, you can't become a black belt without knowing the basic blocking and tackling punches and blocks that you learn as a white belt, right? Right. And everything is progressive. And I think the problem that we have in our society, Matt, is too many people want to be experts and gurus right out of the gate. Right. And they forget that there's a long road of you know bloody noses and dis you know dislocated elbows to become that guru, you know, um, you know to be a master of something takes practice. Like you actually have to work at something. You got to work at it. I would say, I mean, and, and you know, I'm, a lot of people call like our industry, whether it's mentoring or coaching or the expert space or uh-huh. whatever it is, um, there's all these different names. Yeah. But I, th- I think the thing that gets missed sometimes is, you know, there's a lot of classes and seminars and trainings about how you can become this expert, you can become a coach, you can, but you forget that you have to be an expert at something first. And right. So it's like, let's just come out and coach something. Like I always say, you know, I didn't like, I, I do a lot of public speaking training, right? Yeah, sure. And I didn't genuinely, like, I didn't really feel comfortable teaching and going, oh, I have, I have a workshop about this. I can coach you in this until I'd put on 150 plus yeah. multi-day events, yep. probably 500, uh, workshops, right. including day, you know, single days and evenings. 
Um, but it, it took, I mean, eight years, almost 10 years of doing it, yep. not teaching public speaking, but doing it for doing something else for a living, doing personal development until I finally said, you know, I guess I could teach you how to put on workshops. But it, it took that time, yeah. and you are no stranger to to taking the time and working through things. Well, dude, that is the classic lesson in life. I think again, you see it all the time that people want the shortcut. Right. How often do you get a LinkedIn request from somebody and they start immediately pitching you? Right. You don't even build a relationship, right? Well, I had this happen to to me just a few days ago. Guy contacts me through LinkedIn. We had some mutual connections. I accept it. And first message is that, um, let me show you how to make more money, make money doing webinars. So I went to his website and like make him like some million dollars I can make, you know, doing the webinar. Absolutely. And I said, okay, let me go take a look at his website. He doesn't have a website. There's no business that he's owned that I could see where he was actually did, did anything. So I sent him a message back. Maybe I missed something on your LinkedIn page. Tell me, how much have you made bes- um, doing webinars besides teaching people how to do webinars? Right. How much have you made in webinars that don't include teaching how to make money in webinars? Exactly. Thank you. That's a better way, <laughs> a better way to do it. <laughs> and guess what? Crickets. Didn't even respond right. to me. Because right? it was probably uh, because he an did, auto e- thing. Exactly. Well, maybe. But anyway, the point is, I don't think by looking at his background that he did the work that you just got through talking about. Anyway, so right. Boy Scouts does that. You're a... Uh, a scout and then a tenderfoot and you know you go through the ranks and same thing with martial arts and i think that's just the way life is yeah you you, got to put in the hard work if you want to become a master at anything yeah now i i i saw in uh in some of my i did some secret ninja research on you (laughs) Uh and wait i I saw that you had attended stanford is that right yeah i did the executive program there okay how 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 old were you when you got doing the executive program at stanford Oh gosh! Is that like a college age thing, or is that a later no, in life? No, it's a late. You no, know, you've got to be an executive in a business in order to go oh. through it. So it's like it's part. You go to so there, it's four the executives school. already. Mm-hmm. Okay, I thought it was no. prep to become. No. get into executive. No, you've got to have an executive position uh, in an organization. Mm-hmm. So it's at their business school. You know, like That's the awesome. MBA. Oh yeah, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I think at the time they had, I think five, four or five of the professors were Nobel laureates. Wow. Yeah. No. <laughs> It's like you're sitting on the edge of your of your seat for every class. It was pretty spectacular. So everything from finance to marketing to team building, all kinds of stuff. Now, so when you were in high school, did you know you were going to go into the military? Did you know? Did you have a dream of going into Stanford or no, going to college? No. What, what was the aspirations in high school time? No, no. When I was in high school, um, I. Believe me, I knew my grades. I knew I wasn't going to get into college. And by the way, remember when you're in like eighth or ninth grade and you go meet with a guidance counselor and they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you remember that? Vaguely. Well, so I remember mine vividly. And so I went in and sat down with this woman and she asked that question. And I said, well, I want to be a veterinarian. And Mm -hmm. she literally chuckled and said, honey, you're not going to be a veterinarian. You're not smart enough to be a veterinarian. But if you want to work around animals, then we can get you into FFA. Future Farmers of America, and you can work with animals there. And so this is, now believe me, I knew my grades. Right. <laughs> they sucked. Um, this is an authority figure who's telling me this. So guess what I believed? Right. I believed her. Right. You know? And so I went through my life, um, you know, thinking that I was dumb. You know, there's a great quote by Albert Einstein that says something like, um, um, everyone's a genius, but, um, how's it go? Everyone's a genius, but if, um, if you judge if you a, teach a fish, if you judge a fish, if you judge by a fish its by its ability. ability to climb a tree, 
Yeah. Yeah. You know that quote, right? It'll go his whole life feeling like it's stupid. Yeah. So thank you hmm. for that. Um, so that's kind of. I love that one. The, yeah. I mean, I got Einstein tattooed on my on my arm. Oh, that's yeah. an Einstein equation. Yeah. I love the guy. So that's the, that's what that's what I went through high school thinking, right? Wow. So, but I did believe that I had the chops for business ownership. Mm-hmm. I don't know how or why. I didn't know the term entrepreneurship at the time or entrepreneur. Did you have any business owners like in your family, no, like an uncle or something, no, or a no. distant cousin? No, not twice that, removed. Not that I know of. I huh. I had an uncle who was like uh, vice president of transportation for a oil company. Um, uh, Kendall Oil, um, back there mm. in Bradford, Pennsylvania. But other than that, no, no, yeah. nobody. Did you, did you ever? I mean, did you come across someone, or like sometimes you know someone like maybe you you read a book or did you see someone on TV <laughs> and you're book? like, that's no. what I want to do. No, well, not no. a book, I suppose. No, not a book. Uh, I mean, I'm an avid reader. Days. I'm an avid reader now. Um, there was a guy I do remember um, a guy who owned a restaurant in, in town, and he had declared bankruptcy. And I remember it really pissing my father off. He had declared bankruptcy, but still kept his business. <laughs> and it's like, and even then I thought, well, there's got to be reason. So like now folks who are in business, you understand there's different types of bankruptcy, right? Correct, yeah. Um, and there are bankruptcies where you can pay off your, your creditors. And, you know, if yeah, you've been in business for any length of time, you have either been through bankruptcy or faced the threat of bankruptcy. Yeah. You know, I have been there at points in my career. Yeah. I'm um, 2008. I just, yeah. mine actually just dropped off personally. 10 oh, is that years. right? Yeah. It's been 10 years, yeah. but that, that was a hard moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, particularly in this last depression, a lot of people went, went, went through that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so in high school, no, I, I knew I wanted to be a, in, get into business. The interesting thing was that my parents um, had no concept of that. And they thought that that was, that I was going to become the man by being the business owner. Right. Right. And so my dad's aspirations for me was to, uh, work for the post office, get a government job. Cause he's a factory worker. So, he and that was a good gig. Exactly. You know, if you're gonna be a factory worker, getting a government gig, which basically they can't let you go. I remember him saying that, you know, you get, after you're there for a certain while, they can't fire you. You know, you get the days, guaranteed. Exactly. Wow. And that to me was like death. I remember thinking I can't do, that will be a slow death for me. I need to get out of here. So um, I'd mentioned my twin brother earlier. He and I came out to a martial arts tournament. I say came out because remember we lived in rural New York and there was a right. martial arts tournament, a national martial arts tournament in San Jose, California. Oh. And so we came out to that and I had heard a rumor talking to a guy that the army was going to be sponsoring the, um, the first demonstration Taekwondo team for the 1984 Olympics. And I thought, that is my ticket out. Wow. I'm going to go down. I'm going to get on this Army-sponsored Taekwondo team. Like, there was no doubt in my mind that this was what, what was going to happen. I believed that this was going to happen. And so we got home. I walked down to the Army recruiter's office. It was a couple blocks from our my house. And how old are you at my this apartment. point? I'm uh, 18, probably, at this okay. point. I graduated high school. Okay. Um, and so I walked into this Army recruiter's office and plopped down in front of uh, this E6, the staff sergeant's desk, and um, went into this pitch on why I, <laughs> I went into this pitch. <laughs> needed to be on the Army Taekwondo team. And his eyes were like big, like, who is this dude? Yeah. And finally, he put his hand up and said, son, you know, if you want to be on the Army Taekwondo team, you've got to be in the Army. I was like, what? <laughs> I, I thought you just sponsored the darn thing. And so, That's long funny. story short, he ended up um, getting me to take the ASVAB, which is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, which is basically okay. an IQ and aptitude test. Yeah. And he um, 
And so, as it turns out, I scored really high on the thing, mm-hmm. like in the top one tenth of one percentile in the com- in the country. Wow. Yeah. And so, as it turns out, I've and got no a genius. prep. You weren't no, explaining. Pre- no, you can't. No, I was the guy. Literally, I was the guy that when you do take an SAT, remember the SATs? Yeah. The, the little Scantron fill in the bubble right. thing. I would literally make designs on those things because I knew that my chances of passing was higher by making designs than to actually be answering the questions. I was that bad of a student. I'm wow. not kidding you. Put my hand on a Bible. I will. That's. I swear to God, that's that's what <laughs> just, I did. Just make art. Just make art. Why not? I love it. And so um, it was. It was pretty funky. Anyway, so I walk into the uh, one to to get the results of this thing, and he says he tells me this, and I said, "What? Are you sure?" And he said, literally, he said, "I know. I can't believe it either. I saw your high school transcripts. They were that bad." But anyway, he said, "You could do whatever you want in the army." So. Um, you got to try out for these schools, of course. And he said, yeah. and he said you could even try out for special forces. You know, I thought, yeah, the same. That's the same look I got you on said, my face. Huh. Like, oh, really? Try out for what? What special forces? Because I didn't know. I didn't know what special forces so, was. Wow. So as a kid, you weren't like, I'm going to be a special forces nope. guy one day at nope. all. No, I had didn't no idea. Didn't know what it was. Really. Didn't even register. Wow. Didn't even know what it was. And so I said, well, so so he said, you know, the Green Berets, and I had this quizzical look on my face. He said, you know, like John Wayne, the Green Berets. I'd heard of that movie, and he said, like, Billy Jack, and then it registered. For people okay. that are my age, people knew who Billy Jack was. Billy Jack is this, quote-unquote, half-breed Native American peacekeeper Green Beret from Vietnam. Um, and so there was a movie called Billy Jack and Born Losers and all that kind of stuff out right. back then. And I thought, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Goes, Those guys are all really cool. Those guys were cool. They were awesome. They were badasses. And so, can I say badasses? If you want to, yeah. But they <laughs> well, were. I got scolded for using the word pissed on a post on social media the other day. <laughs> so I thought, oh, my gosh. Anyway, so. Um, we can't so, say pissed, though. Oh, oh well, you'll, yeah. you, you post edit that, okay? <laughs> um, post-production. So he, um, so he ended up convincing me to try out for Special Forces, mm-hmm. and I obviously learned about it between the time I met with him and went in and re- realized what uh, the Green Berets were. And so I went in and did really well. Mm. Got assigned to the 10th Special Forces Group, which was the original Special Forces Group, um, the first one. And um, and the rest was kind of history wow. uh, from there. And uh, just learned the importance of team building and working in strengths and get to travel the world and do some great things. How, how long was it sort of like foundational or like basic training stuff until you, did you go from like basic training yeah. right into special forces or was so there could, a, yeah. a maturation for yeah, it? Uh, no, there was no maturation. <laughs> um, so they were trying this experimental thing. It used to be, and it probably still is, you had to be promotable to sergeant to even try out. What does promotable um, mean? Like if you're, if you're a corporal, Okay. Or you're a specialist, which is the rank of E4, to become a sergeant called promotable. So you've got to be on the sergeant's list. Okay, um, gotcha. Say, okay, you can actually become a sergeant um, to get in. So I went through as a private. And so I was looked down upon by all the guys who were already sergeants and staff sergeants and sergeants mm-hmm. first class who, you know, served in, you know, deployments to Panama and, you know, been around the world and Grenada and, you know, Vietnam. And here I was, this punk trying to right. get into special forces. So I had. What, what was the culture like when you were first coming into it? Then I was very competitive, you know, and um, I would say you that were. Was, or the whole culture was. The whole culture was. Yeah. Now, these are type. Well, think about it. I don't know if anybody that, who knows about Green Berets. These are type A apex predator type of beast, mm-hmm. right? Um, and um, which is very fascinating. 
I mean, in any other culture, take these are the 12 guys on a special forces A team. Think about the corporate arena. You put 12 type A apex personalities into a room, right. what do you get? Pandemonium and bloodshed. Right. Right? Yeah. But somehow. Lord of the flies. Yes, right. <laughs> but somehow the military, the armies figured out how to build harmonious teams mm -hmm. where people build each other up. And the way they do that is by working in your strengths, you right. know, and making it a collaborative environment, not a competitive competitive environment. So it was very competitive to, to get in. Um, it was fascinating. And, um, but yeah, in the beginning, people were like, who's this PFC, this private first class, uh, trying to, you know, go through this course. Mm -hmm. And, um, but by the end, um, you know, they were my biggest cheerleaders. Wow. And uh, there were people who were dropping out, you know, left and right uh, throughout the course. But it's one of the things that we I've applied to business, and that is that um, and to go through the qualification course, you do peer reviews. Mm -hmm. So you could be, and there were guys who were doing really well in all of the, um, the coursework and all of the activities, all of the training, but they were either a jerk or they didn't get along with people, they had a negative attitude. Um, and so you could peer people out. So if you got enough negative peer reviews, you were booted you out. You vote them off the you island. You vote them off they're, the island. They're done. So imagine if you wow. could do that, and we do, but imagine if you could, if you did that in the corporate arena. Right. How would people show up hmm. if they knew that their peers were going to be reviewing them as well as their supervisors, as well as the people where they were, quote, unquote, down the food chain? Right. And then, so you do 360-degree reviews. Yep. People show up differently. Wow. They sure do. Is that the sort of thing? Have you been able to find a way to implement that in like in your hotel oh, we do. businesses? Oh, we do. We do 360-degree reviews. You do? Our, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. This is why one of the reasons why we outperform our competitors, I think. Hmm. We run a more lean organization than others because we make sure people are working in their strengths. So like your hotel manager will get a peer review from someone doing like in the housekeeping industry or in the food. Well, or people that are on their team, yeah. On their team, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So managers get reviewed by their executive committee. Which is amazing because I, I feel like it would also not just, not just, you know, how do you show up when, when you don't know who's looking, but also it, it's got to empower the other people as well to go, hey, I, I have influence into the people I work for and you actually care about my opinion, my voice. Yeah, it does a lot of things, Matt. So one, one thing is this. Um, in the beginning, it's scary. So I remember the first time at my former company where I was a partner where we did, uh, we had our managers review my business partner uh, mm -hmm. and I. So when you've got your quote unquote employees, we don't call them employees, we call them team members. But when you have sure. your team members reviewing you, those are people who report to you, the first time they're gonna hold back a little bit because they don't really know what this means, right? Yeah, I mean, I can't say everything, can I? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the first and second time, it was it, it hurt, it hurt bad. Mm. You know, um, but when you go out and say, okay, I've heard you and now I'm going to do something about it, mm -hmm. then you can actually improve as an organization. So if you, if, if everyone knows that we're viewing each other and we're not doing it to like sandbag you, but because we want to be the best that we can be, right. that we're striving for excellence in everything we do. It's what the Greeks call arete, right? Mm -hmm. The pursuit of excellence in everything. Um, and that you're using this as a tool for improvement, mm -hmm. then it takes some of the bite out of it. Um, no one in our organization has been terminated or, or scolded or reprimanded because they've got a negative peer review the first time. Hmm. You look at it as an opportunity to learn because everyone wants to be on a winning team. And so when we call our team members, when we call our employees team members, 
Right. So if you're in a football team or a basketball team or a softball team, you coach up your teammates, don't you? Sure, yeah. You don't let somebody slack if they're slacking. You can't win on your own. Exactly. So why is it in the corporate arena we think that mm. someone's not pulling their weight, that we just, it's not my job, you know, the supervisor's job uh, to manage this person. No, we need to manage each other. I just got to get through my day and ignore them. Exactly. Wow. And so we're Makes all. Makes sense. Yeah. So when we understand that we are all invested or should be anyway in the success of the organization we look at each other mm -hmm. and ourselves differently yeah how long were you uh how long were you in uh military from start to finish was nine it one years. and was it one straight nine year no, block no no i enlisted originally for three years okay yeah and then i extended when we were overseas for six months um just to get my promotion to sergeant mm -hmm. um and then i uh, re-enlisted and did, did you ever, were you out for a period and then back in? No. Or was it always just re-enlisted yeah. straight yeah. up? Yeah, so um, I did about four, a little over four years on active duty, and then the rest were in the res active reserves. Wow. And and what, what was your terminal rank? Was it staff sergeant? Staff sergeant. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. That's amazing. Mm. I got so much respect for that. I, uh, I don't know if yeah. I'm able to share that enough because, mm. like, so I, I don't have military experience, yeah. and my direct family did. My grandfather served in World War II, and, I, you know, I look out and, today's landscape with how much things have been changing even yeah. today meaning the last 20 years yeah. um it's easy to i don't know it's almost like another vietnam in a way where you see a lot of culture and people going oh i don't agree with it so i don't know if we need to go there i don't know if we need to be here uh it's so political right yeah but just to pull all that back and just go hang on a second this is this is still about right there's a country that we live in mm -hmm. and we get to love and it might not be it might have mistakes yeah. right there might be leadership quirks <laughs> yeah. big or small depending on what side of the fence you're on sure. but when you when you really pull it all back and look at the world like it's still a really good country it's and an amazing country it's not, not the, the 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 best uh the best options that we have and and i believe that we always have a choice to either tear it down and go figure out what else to do but but you can't tear something down and leave it Right. If you really don't believe in the way something's going, it's I believe it's our job to get out and decide what am I going to do to improve and make it better. Let's build this thing up. Yeah. If only that were reality, because <laughs> yeah. most, not most, many people feel like it's easy to throw stones and have no Absolutely. alternative. And that is what, frankly, drives me nuts. Now, I've not been to as many countries as a, as a lot of people, but I've been to more than most Americans. I've been to like 44, 45 different countries at this point, and I am an avid reader and study other countries, I still believe that we are the best country yeah. in the world, um, and I'll arm wrestle anybody um, uh, about that. Um, as you said, we've got our flaws, but every country has flaws. Every country has flaws. People think that we've got systemic you know, problems in our country. No country in the world has done more than we have um, to fix the flaws that, mm. that we recognize and we have changed a lot over over the years and so um listen we've had no perfect leader in our country even abraham lincoln and george washington considered you know a couple of our best leaders presidents mm. ever had their flaws sure. uh, as well it's how do we how do we respond to those flaws what drives me nuts right now is that there are people who actively want our current leadership to fail and that drives me nuts because I've voted for people um, who haven't been elected, and um, the opponent, the op opposing party, however you want to describe it, um, was actually elected, and I was proud that they're my president, you know. And right. I still cheered them on, you know. Want that? Who doesn't want 
our country to succeed. I, I, I would love nuts. to watch the president succeed. I love to watch the country succeed. I love to watch us together right, Absolutely. succeed. Well, see, that's the thing. That's the whole thing about, what I, that's what I loved about Special Forces, that we are in this together. This is why we call, in our company, we call our employees team members, because right. we are in this together, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so anyway, I, you can get me ranting on this for a while, <laughs> but we should probably switch gears. I, yeah, with uh, at risk of turning into a political debate, because um, yeah. there's nothing really to debate. Um, no. My point of that whole thing, though, is I, I respect so much oh, uh, yeah. a willingness to serve, and and I think no matter what the times are, no matter what the political landscape is, um, at the end of the day, it's still men and women. Dedicated and laying down their life, sometimes physically, sometimes for a period of time. Yeah. Um, there's just, there, I don't think there's really a, a greater sacrifice, and it's it's been for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, we can all learn from that. You don't mm-hmm. have to go in the military to see um, the benefits of it. Right now, I get that there are some people who are just anti-military. I get it. I get it. And you've got the the right to believe that. But when you look, let's just apply this to the business arena. Sure. Um, the number one indicator of success, uh, according to the Small Business Administration, the SBA, is veteran status. Corn Ferry did a study, and they showed that veteran business owners outperform their non-veteran counterparts um, almost twice as likely, 1.8 times more likely to succeed than their non-veteran competitors. What um, do you think the difference that makes a difference is? It's a good question. So there's a lot of things. I would boil it down to this. Well, besides, yes, we do simple things like we do after action reviews in our business. We do mm-hmm. contingency plans. Those are just the basics of any training or, or actual real life mission or exercise that we do. And we apply those to our business because that's what we know how to do. But it's what you were just talking about. When you go into the military, they say that you go into the service. Right. Oh. Those veterans that are still killing it, <laughs> still doing great things in the business arena, you know what they do? They have that mentality. They're serving people. They're serving their team members. They're mm-hmm. serving their clients. Um, and my big thing is this. When you don't know what else to do, when you are feeling depressed, when your business is feel, you feel like you're tanking, just serve other people. The world has a way of, the universe has a way of holding us up and protecting us when we serve other people and we don't put ourselves first. That's what you love about the military and the veterans, right? They are selfless. Yeah. So they serve other people first. Um, and the truth is that when you serve other people, you are serving yourself as well. You get a adrenaline hit from that. You know, you feel good about yourself. So is it a little bit selfish to serve other people? Yeah. But still, the it, crazy things happen when you serve other people. And so I think that's just a great mantra for, for life. And I've really begged people in the space that you and I kind of live in and I think I've said it from your stage, is that when you just chase success for success sake, mm-hmm. it's empty, it's hollow, it drives your life off a cliff. And so stop chasing success. But instead, seek a life of significance. Mm. You know, well, what does that mean? Well, you serve your community, you serve your family, you serve the, the folks at your house of worship, you serve your team members, you serve your clients, you s- just serve, 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 serve and great things happen. Success is the byproduct of a life of significance. Hmm. It's just the way it is. And I, I am not the smartest guy out there, but I have gotten really good at connecting the dots. And I've interviewed hundreds of CEOs and entrepreneurs, and that's what I boil it down to, serve other people 
success will come. So, so if I just heard you, I want to reiterate this and see if this is right. Success comes from a life of significance, mm-hmm. and a life of significance comes from a life of service. Mm-hmm. Right? That's so cool. Yeah. I remember there was a who's that guy mentor of uh, Jesus of Nazareth said, "If you want to be first, you have to be last." Yeah. And and just absolutely preached a message of serve your brothers and sisters, yeah. love them, serve them, wash their feet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you want to be first in heaven, you got to be last here. Yeah. And, and there's just something about putting someone else's needs ahead of my own. You know, whether yeah. whether it's a, a, a child I've never met before or yeah. whether it's my own wife and child or whoever it is. Crazy things happen when you have that mentality. I remember being in the Boy Scouts 100 years ago. We were at this camp called uh, Wolf Creek. Uh-huh. And... Um, it was time for dinner, and all the big guys, the big kids who were higher up in their ranks, started cutting at all. Many started cutting in front of the smaller kids. I remember my scoutmaster said, whoa, 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 guys, no, leaders eat last, hmm. right? And that has stuck with me, and I heard it in the military over and over again as well, leaders eat last. <clears throat> that... Um, I'm getting chills. I, yeah, well, I think that that's the comment. That's what we're talking about here, that's right. right? And frankly, your listeners, I know many of them. I know the folks that, that, that you appeal to. These are leaders. Yeah. They're leaders in life. They're leaders in business. Uh, they're leaders in uh, their religious communities. Um, leaders eat last. Take that approach. That's about serving people, letting other people get a bite of the pie before we take ours. Right. You know? Um, great things are happening for us. Mm, I love that. You have a, a, a really great quote. Um, I think it, it was either on your website or might be in one of your books. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I win and sometimes I learn. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, what, what's your, I mean, I, I think that's your philosophy in a nutshell, but like what's your philosophy on on failure, uh, feedback, and, and perseverance essentially? Like, Yeah. Yeah. No one achieves um, any level of success without failing and failing often. Um, I think we have to embrace failure. Uh, I guess another one of my favorite mantras that I remind myself all the time is that um, if you're not failing, you're not moving fast enough or getting close enough to your fullest potential. Hmm. Think about Olympic swimmers or any kind of Olympic athlete um, or uh, anyone who's achieved anything. They have failed a whole lot before they've ever achieved success. That's what we were talking about earlier, the whole practice, 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 practice thing, right? Um, too often people don't talk about their failures. Um, and I think that we ought to talk about them publicly so that we give people permission uh, to actual fail. In our organization, our, any of our companies, um, people don't get fired for failing or for making a mistake. Now, if you make that same mistake over and over again, yeah, you're on shaky ground and you're probably going to lose your job. Right. But we're going to coach you up and then we're going to coach you out. But it's not right? about failure. It's about failure to learn, failure exactly. to change, failure to right, care and, enough maybe. Right. And this is why um, we, in our company, in every company that's in my uh, coaching program, we encourage people to do AARs, after action reviews. Mm-hmm. So after every uh, key hire in the organization, after any marketing initiative, after any product launch, you should do an AAR. So what's an AAR, Larry? An AAR is um, you ask yourself these three questions. After this product launch, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And how can we improve the next time? You don't place blame. You don't point fingers. It's just factual. You get the team together, say, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And how can we improve the next time? If we were to do that, then you will learn from your failures very quickly. But oftentimes, we you know we have a failure, and either we stick our head in the sand and don't admit it, and we point 
fingers at someone else, it's their fault. Or we go back to the office, curl up in the fetal position, and lick our wounds for six months before we stick our head right. back out. Neither of those are acceptable. It's shocking how often, in, in, and whether it's culture or it's a family thing or something, that, that we need to find blame. Huh. I mean, I think in, in culturally, right? Like ever since you know the dawn of time, it's whose fault is this? Yeah. Certainly, like in, in government, you know, who's gonna or politics, who's gonna be the fall person? Yeah. And and I find it even like in family too. You can just hear it somewhere from a mom or a dad or or an, uh, oh my gosh, what happened? Well, who dropped the ball? And it's yeah. like, what if you just said, I don't care who dropped the ball. What balls got dropped? And how do we make sure they don't next time? Yeah. And you just focused on the actual work itself. Yeah. Right. And then the people, people, I mean, they'll always, they'll always grow into the vision you have for the people. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. There's something freeing as well when you say, yeah, that was my fault. I dropped the ball on that one. I'm sorry. Like, I'm really sorry. There's something freeing about that. And you, you gain credits with those other, the person who you just apologized to Mm. or the team for saying, yeah, I, I dropped the ball. Uh, and I didn't, my whole life, you know, I've struggled with this, you know, um, and so it's a daily battle sometimes to say I was wrong. Can, um, you, th- can you think of like, like back in, in the military time in the Green Beret, w- mm-hmm. w- w- was there any like a mistake that sticks out for you in your memory of like, oh, man, like that one. T- I remember on that mission. I remember on this time. Anything you can talk about here. Yeah. That well, you just you blundered. Know, <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing I blundered that I actually was injured in. Oh, no. Um, yeah. So I had a serious parachute malfunction um, or accident. I shouldn't say malfunction. Um, and for those people who are uh, in the military and know what an airborne exercise is. Yeah. There was a guy. Um, we were doing a demonstration and we are 12 of us jumped out of the plane and were trying to be very, come down in a tight formation. And there was a guy, it's both of our faults, but really I should have been paying more attention. He, he, his parachute, he's what they call slipped. He slipped under me. Okay. okay? So imagine if you're coming down in a parachute. Were you both already chutes deployed? Chutes were deployed at this point. He, it's calling stealing air. So yep. he stole my air. Right in your slipstream there. Yeah. And so my chute collapsed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I could feel the risers of the parachute fall right down my back. And um, so the parachute just fell, and I landed inside his parachute. So his parachute envelops me. What? Yeah. How, how high up off the ground do you think you oh, were, we were when he did this? Oh, we were probably about 1,000 feet off the ground at this point. Not very. She isn't very far. No, you don't have time to really respond. And so I did the typical Whoa. spread eagle and tried to you know, get out of it. And, but just anyway. so we know that we don't know what's typical. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> typical spread eagle, you know, you know what you do when you try to get out when your parachute collapses. <laughs> well, you and everyone does. Everybody this. knows this. Oh my god! You're right. Okay, you're so right. so what? So hang on, let's back up a second. So you're in the air a thousand feet up. Yeah, yeah. A guy comes underneath, uh-huh. and then there's a dozen of you. He comes underneath you, yeah. steals the air. Your parachute collapses. Yes. He's still under you, He's far in- enough that you're not like. Right on top of him. Yeah. So his his parachute is still has air in it, but then when I hit and his I saw, parachute, I assume you're going faster now than he yeah, is. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so his parachute envelops me. So all I see and feel is silk. I can't see the sky. I can't see the ground. Oh my gosh. I'm totally enveloped. And so then what happens? So we start falling even faster. Both of us now, right? Uh-huh. And so I'm spread eagle trying to get out of it, right? Yep. Um, because so I which know, means so you're trying to get more air surface on your body, right? On my body, and I'm just trying to get out of the enveloped um, mm-hmm. canopy, right? Right. 
And so, obviously, we're getting closer to the earth at this point, and his name was Terry, or is, well, was, he's passed away. Um, not Terry, from that. Not from that. Terry exactly. Millard was his name. Mm. Um, and so, we're plummeting towards the earth, and the only way I knew how close we were to the earth was, there was, there was a word that he kept saying over and over again. Uh-huh. It's the S word. I'll, 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 I'll um, say crap. And you say, crap, crap. Crap, 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 crap. So the, 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 the closer I got, I knew we were getting closer to the ground. Oh, my god! And gosh. I heard him hit the ground, and I landed on my back, flat on my back um, on, the, on the ground. Now, we weren't going terminal velocity, thank sure. goodness, but he got a compound fracture in his leg. And um, I... As it turns out, I didn't think I was injured, but I, I was. I ended up p- pulling three vertebra- vertebrae away. I mean, three ribs away from my vertebrae. Oh, um, wow. And um, so, yeah, so that was a mistake that we that we both made. And the great thing was neither of us blamed each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the team gathered around. You know, we did an AAR. Now, he, I, he obviously ambulance. Thank goodness it was at a demonstration. It was like, it was like at an air show. Oh, And so my there was gosh. an ambulance there waiting for us just in case know. well they could see yeah, just in case but you could everybody saw this happen you know wow. and by the way if there's anybody there that was at this airfield that hamilton army airfield uh-huh. <laughs> and got video of this would love to have that um but um so terry went off to the hospital and my our friend mike plessis who was on the swat team in sacramento at the time um we went to his wedding uh, right afterwards. And so we kept telling the story over and over again and so kept getting the shots of adrenaline. And so I didn't realize that I was really injured wow. until I went to lay down that night and went to lay down on my back and uh, I couldn't breathe. And then I knew I was pretty screwed up. Wow. So w- was the culture at that point already one of like um, the AARs mm-hmm. that, that, but, but it, it was a culture of we don't blame, we fix yeah. sort of thing? Yeah, of course. So both of you and the rest of the team, nobody was like, Oh my you gosh, idiot. that Terry or that Larry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, no, we'd had a team member, Don O'Shea was his name, and Don and I are you know, still keep in touch. Um, you know, he had a serious malfunction at uh, Halo School, uh, High Altitude Low Opening School, uh, free, Military Free Fall School, and he got really screwed up, broke his back and a bunch of other oh, things. No. And uh, But he ended up, you know, healing and going back out and, and serving. Um, and wow. so mistakes happen when you live a life of risk, when you live on the edge, you're going to make mistakes. I mean, like, like walking on a wire, Yeah, you know, that's what life is sometimes. And sometimes you're going to fall on one side, sometimes you're going to fall on the other. Sometimes you're going to grab on, get a grip of that wire um, and pull yourself back up. Um, but I'd mm. rather live that life than, you know, live in gray mediocrity for the rest of my life. Wow. So, live in gray mediocrity. Ugh, what a that's what, death. What a picture. That just... <laughs> Yeah, that I, I got a little bit sick uh, yeah, yeah. in my throat. <laughs> I love that. So I mean, if, if if like if we take nothing else, like the, the biggest thing I'm taking away personally, just from just time together right now, is is remembering that every mistake means I'm pushing hard enough. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, I, I love climbing, and one of the things I've always said yeah. with climbing is if you're not falling, you're not climbing hard enough grades. So if you're out That's there right. like I'm climbing five ten or whatever it is, and you don't ever fall, it's like yeah. you're climbing below your grade. Exactly. That's why you're not falling. Yeah. Okay? If you yeah. never stressed with lifting weights, then right. you're not lifting hard. Few things in life are really life and death. Mm. Very few. That one you know? clearly was. Well, it was. It was absolutely. <laughs> but I'm saying few. But yeah. Few are. But I've True. Take, I've taken that lesson though and applied it to everything else. Everything else in my life, right? 
Um, you know, I've got a son who just amazes me. He's 14 now, and I'll be honest with you, he struggles sometimes with competition. He loves winning, but he hates the 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 process of getting there. And by the process, I mean he, he doesn't mind practicing, he doesn't mind training. Mm-hmm. But when when it comes to competition day, those days freak him out. Mm. You know, and um, and so I've had to have those conversations. Like no one is going to die here. You know, right. um, but you know he's that age where he thinks like everybody's looking at him and everybody's going to remember this the rest of their lives. Yeah, and they're not. They're all focused on our own little world. They probably but, didn't even know you were here. Exactly, but if you think about that, like particularly in public speaking, as you know from teaching people this, you know the number one fear in the world, not in the U.S. but in the world, there's a book called The Fears, Top Fears of the World. The number one fear of the world is not just dying, but it's burning to death. That's oh. the number one fear. Um. I'm sorry, that's the number two fear. The number one number fear two. is public speaking. Yeah. So you know that what's, why, why are people afraid to public, get up there and do public speaking? Fear of embarrassment. Mm-hmm. They're looking at me. You know, they're going to see me make mistakes. They're going to see that I'm nervous. Most right. people just getting on stage, the audience, at least Americans, um, they want you to succeed. Right. They want you to. Nobody's looking, sitting back there and saying, oh, I hope that they bomb. I hope this is there. a train wreck. Yeah, exactly. No. Nobody wants that. So I think that those little failures that I've had, like this parachuting accident with Terry, um, just taught me just get back out there because even the people that you're closest with, mm-hmm. um, if you've got, if you've built, if you, well, here's the thing: you have to have an emotional reservoir mm-hmm. for these people. You've got to have emotional capital yeah. built up. If you just take, 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 take from your team members and yeah. then you screw up, they're less likely to cut you some slack. But if you're constantly serving them, helping them, they're going to jump right in when you've had a failure. Mm. And and what and whether it's uh, I don't like that word, but like a subordinate team member or a superior team member, like no matter what it is, if you've been giving and serving, they're going to jump in and lift you up. Yeah, well, that's a great thing to think about. Now, I I didn't spend one day in the conventional military, so I can't I don't know about the you know pop into attention yes or no sir three bags full sir wow um, so, so my, as, as compared to special forces the special forces it's unconventional and so we are always just brothers teammates and we treated each other uh, as such could you grow right? facial hair yeah yeah you do you have relaxed grooming standards at times yeah Dang. so um so the, the thing was though that that's the culture that i have in my organizations we're all in this together mm-hmm. and um so you know the as you were saying, kind of the subordinates. Yeah. Um, you know, even our room attendants or our bar backs uh, have a voice right. in the organization, and uh, they've got an equal voice. Now we have people who are vice presidents or executives; they've got more experience. Mm-hmm. But I think that as business owners and executives, we need to be tapping into those folks, the the um, the people that are on the front line to see what's really going on in the organization. Absolutely, I mean, who's gonna know better, exactly. right? It's nothing wrong with being in, in, in an executive boardroom if that you know that's where you need to be to yeah. make higher level decisions, yeah. but but who's gonna know better but the person with the ear to the ground? That's right. Person interacting with the guests constantly. Right, right, you know? totally agree, totally agree. That's so fascinating. I remember um, working with, uh, studying with Dr. Don Beck, who, who um, was one of the um, major proprietors of Spiral Dynamics, like a, a cultural leadership um, kind of a cultural value study, mm-hmm. right? Really academic and really useful in business. And he shared a story when he worked with Dunn Edwards Paint once. And he said, where do you get most of your customer feedback? And, you know, they said, oh, well, you know, we we send surveys and we do this and we do that. And he said, um, what do you do with your truck drivers? They said, what do you mean? They deliver paint. And he said, no, they don't. Because the truck driver delivers the paint. Then they go into Home Depot. 
and they're talking with the people on the ground. They see the shelves and what's missing. What's like they, so it turned out the truck drivers had more data than anybody else, but everyone in the company originally thought they were just delivery people. What do they know? So they come back and talk to a salesperson and say, Hey, you know, I saw over in Whittier that this is going on or they said this paint's really flying off the shelves. And the salesperson's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go back yeah. and deliver paint, delivery yeah. guy. Yeah. I'm going to sell. Yeah. Um, it's just it's fascinating when, when you have there's so many hidden assets right. uh, and hidden resources and people that That's we right. might not realize are there. Yeah, so true. Um, when you, how old were you when you got into the hotel industry itself? Yeah, you know, that's so a story we haven't even started talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, yet. It, was, it was after my military service. I was in my twenties. Um, and you started working for uh, a pretty small, was it a motel or a hotel? It was a no-tell motel. A no-tell motel. No, literally. So for those who don't know what that is, it's like pay by the hour. Right. Pay um, cash, pay by the hour. Yeah. And so um, it was in San Francisco in the Tenderloin, uh, which is at the time kind of the ghetto area. Mm-hmm. Lots of drugs, lots of prostitution. Um, and um, yeah, so... But it paid my paid my bills, you know. Um, I went in at eleven o'clock at night, got off at uh, seven in the morning. What was your first position over there? Night auditor. Night auditor. Yeah. And what so does that my mean? job just... is yeah. So I was kind of like uh, really to keep the peace, um, but also I closed out the books for the for the day mm-hmm. before um, and did it manually. And remember, this is a guy who's dyslexic. Now I got it under control uh, at this point. So it was really only maybe for eight hour shift three or four hours of actual work mm-hmm. and the rest of the time you know after whatever it was three in the morning um it was i was able to study and read because i was going to school in oh, the morning okay. my first class was at eight or eight thirty or something like that um wow. going to college and um yeah so that's kind of what i did so i was there for a few months it just this is it was a dive it was disgusting well, clearly um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but an investment group came in and bought this place okay with the intention of renovating it, turning it around, turning it into what's called the, the the concept was a rock and roll hotel, changed the name to the Phoenix Hotel. It's still in San Francisco today. I'm still a partner owner. Really? In, in, in the property, yeah. So when the investor group came in, you were working there. I was working there, and how long had you been there at that point? Only a few months. Now everyone else was it was a cast of characters. Like one of the guys was on parole as a pimp. One guy was uh, I had. Uh, he had OD'd behind the front desk. He was the local heroin dealer. Oh my god! It was it was a cast of characters for sure. Certainly. Our the executive housekeeper was um, was um, part of uh, the guy's harem. She was you know a prostitute. Um, wow. So they worked, but they also had these other side gigs. Wow! You know, very entrepreneurial group. Yeah, very entrepreneurial. <laughs> but uh, when this investment group uh, picked up the property, you know, I was kept on as with the maybe a couple other people. Um, they renovated it, turned it into this cool place. I became a manager there. Still working in the hotel industry. Had no interest, I mean, still going to school, st- studying political science. I thought I wanted to get into the State Department or run for political office mm-hmm. one day. And, um, but, uh, you know, back then I had this aspiration of being the youngest U.S. Senator from California. Um, wow. And that's why, on this politics stuff, oh, I could go all day. Yeah. But anyway, um you know, I was there for just a few months and started realizing after this place had been renovated that this hotel industry thing could be very cool because it's got so many facets to it. Because I have a lot of interest, but between the leadership, the team building, the marketing, the finance, the deal making, the real estate, it could be really cool. Hmm. And so I was exposed to that and ultimately became a partner in this company. And in about 14 years, we picked up about 14 different hotels. 
And um, so you're working for the Phoenix, and then you. So you. How did the opportunity to become a partner in the in the business work? How did yeah. that happen? So Desert Storm broke out. Okay. Um, we uh, went back on active duty um, and came back after that. And uh, the managing member, the founder of this company, um, had picked up two other hotels while I was gone. Mm-hmm. And honestly, he was kind of stressed out. I went in to say, hey, goodbye. I'm moving to Mexico for two years. I'd never not worked since I was you know, a teenager in high school. And so I decided I'm going to take a year or two off and just move to Mexico. I went out and bought a little, I forget what they called them, like a small Winnebago, arrow or something. No. And uh, and got a couple of uh, ATVs, put them on the back, and I was just going to sit on the beach and rent out ATVs. Epic. And are you about 30 at this point? Give yeah. Take, or? Yeah. 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 I was about that. Yeah. And so I um, – Oh, my gosh. Like, hey, yeah. I got uh, the ATVs packed up, so uh, see you later. good see you luck in, with the hotel. See you in a couple of years. And he said, please don't go. <laughs> he said, I need you. Uh, come back. Um, I'll make you a partner in the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's grow this thing. And so um, I was going going with a friend of mine, Julian. Um, and so um, I said, let me think about it for 24 hours. And I came back. I still hadn't graduated college yet. And I thought, when am I going to get another opportunity like this? Sure. And so I went back and said, yeah, I'm in. Let's grow this thing. And so we did. So I was the number two guy at this organization for 14 wow. years, and we did well. So I learned a lot about leadership. I learned what to do right, what to do wrong, how to improve, mm-hmm. right? And so it was getting to be like the late 90s, and I'd realized this is not my gig. I'm really a primary leader, but I was stuck in a secondary leadership role. Mm-hmm. And this is where I would encourage, Matt, your listeners, who are you? Mm-hmm. Not what are you? Who are you? How do you show up the best? And mm-hmm. I knew for me, being... Um, up the primary leader is where I was going to shine, mm. you know, not carrying water for somebody else. Yeah. And that's fine if that's how you're built. Right. You know, like I've had some great partners who wanted to be behind the scenes. They didn't want to be out in front, you know. And so, um, so anyway, in the late 90s, um, I, you know, fallen in love and gotten married and, mm. um, and we realized we wanted to start a family, and uh, my ex-wife was working as many hours as I was, and so we decided um, to move to Southern California and start my own gig. Wow! And so we did. So you moved to Southern California to start, and this is the first time you started your own. Was it a hotel? Yeah. So we moved to Santa Barbara first, um, and um, bought a couple of restaurants and coffee shops. Really? Had no interest at that point. I said, "Listen, I'm burned out on the hotel industry." I mean, let's not skip this part too. So, do you have, do you have kids at this point? No, or, no. Emily and Ben, not no, here yet. Not here yet. Okay. So, so it's uh, just the two of you. It was the two of us. So you must have done pretty well with the partnership in the hotel. I'm assuming. Did, yeah. d- did you end up? And you know, if, I don't know if, if this is all open to talk or not. But just shut me down if I'm asking too many questions. Yeah. Um, uh, for on the money side of things. Yeah. When when a guy says, "Okay, come in and be a partner," was it like, oh. "Hey"? My percentage, your percentage. Mm-hmm. Was it a revenue split? Was it a no, real a percentage, s- real real equity, sweat equity? It's real, real equity, sweat equity. I didn't put any money into the deals, and I was going to getting ten percent. Okay. Some de- in some deals, twenty percent of the partnership. Um, and so after I left my day to day role, I maintained those that those equity positions. So it was the late nineties. Oh, so so they would buy a hotel and hang on to it, oftentimes, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, I still own 10, 20%, whatever it yeah. is of this hotel. Yeah. And I'm or in, in, in one case, 2%. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, but the thing is, it's 2 to 20, that's two, not bad. 2%, 5%, 10%, and you do that across a few different deals, and that starts to turn into real money. Right, because this is residual because they're they're not flipped deals. They're that's deals right. that they, they fixed and then kept. Yeah. And right. then would you also be part of deals that got uh, fixed, and then did they flip hotels oh, sure. too? Yeah. sure. And yeah. then it was like, okay, the payout, so the at payday. the end of the day, we made this much. and Here's $200,000 or whatever the number wow. was. Can I, how, how do I get a job there? <laughs> get out of the coaching um, yeah. business, man. Yeah. That sounds great. So you moved so, to yeah, Santa Barbara. So we went from getting ca- uh, distribution checks. That's what those are. You know, mm-hmm. we get distribution checks, and sometimes they're big, big checks, right? Um, that's awesome. But, but then, yeah, and then 2000 hit is when I really started the, my hotel company. Um, and um, if you remember back in 2000, that's when the wheels started coming off the dot-com mm-hmm. industry. Yep, 2000 and 2001. That's right. So it got to be um, – so I put my first hotel into escrow by myself because I had some partners of mine from my days in San Francisco who really liked what I was doing. Mm-hmm. L- was disappointed that I left the other company. And so they said, hey, let's do a deal together, just you and, and us. So we bought a hotel out in Palm Desert, uh, put it in escrow in November of 2000, and then – it was really like January 2001. We were in a recession. Big time, yeah. At that point, right? Dot-com bomb, national recession, international recession. And mortgage rates uh, right. went, went up. The stock market crashed. That's right. I was SARS, the exactly. Then, SARS remember came, SARS, yeah. the yeah. avian flu? Yeah. That was rough because um, it was really the Asian tra- tourism industry just mm-hmm. crashed. Nobody a wants third, to go anywhere. No. A third of the, the, uh, the travel market in San Francisco at the time, which is where all of our hotels were, um, were from the Asian countries, Pacific Rim countries. Wow. And so um, all of those investments that I, I talked to you about, we lost 40, about 40 to 45% value in that one year. And then 9-11 hit. Mm. So That's January we, 01, now we're September 01. Now we're September 01. And during that whole year, I was writing capital call checks back to my other company. So instead of getting distribution checks, mm-hmm. I was writing checks back. Oh, no. When I could. Got to the point where I had about eighty-four dollars in in the bank. Um, my wife is now, well, we had our my daughter was born in June of that year. Um, we were living in a rented townhouse. June two thousand one. Mm-hmm. You are kidding me, sir. No. So I got so it's now December yeah, of, of two thousand one. Had to write some capital call checks which I had no money for. Um, had uh, two payrolls that were due. Because um, we opened two hotels in September, um, and I had about eighty-four dollars in the bank. Good timing, by the way. Yeah. So it really sucked, and um, and so you know, kind of a personal crash uh, at that point. I don't need to go into great detail, but I yeah. really hit bottom, and I was acting out, doing really stupid stuff, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, my wife said to me, "You need to get your stuff together. Either you need to get a job." Or you need to, like, like, I wasn't doing any kind of masterminds at the time. I wasn't stopped nothing. having mentors, nothing. I was, I was, you know, reading and believing my own press. Right. You know, he like was just, chamber he, of yeah. Larry. Oh, my gosh. It was miserable. And so. Do, um, you, feel, do you feel like, too, um, some of the, I hear, like, a, a lot of military friends say, like, after they've, They've left right the camaraderie, the yeah. the standard bearers, yeah. right? Of having uh, friends, community at that level, that standard, family at that standard. Um, after like post military, do you feel like that was also did that contribute yeah. to how you reacted and how you would act out and, and how you would deal with yeah. the failure or whatever? Yeah, you'd there call is that? nothing like the camaraderie 
of team members when you're in the military. Right. Nothing, nothing like it. And so, but I was smart enough where at least I had some mentors when I was uh, still working and living in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and I stopped all of that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, thank goodness, um, you know, she kicked me in the butt and said, you need to do this. And um, in total transparency, you know, she left for, she took my daughter and said, get your crap together. No, wow. this acting out. So it was you're, really bad. It was bad. Yeah. Oh, it was bad. And it was a wake-up call. And I literally had one of those uh, moments where I was on my knees um, like, and just said, I give up. I'm done. I surrender. I am, which surrender was not even in my vocabulary at no. that point. Well, because that's got to mean something very bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Compared what I realized is that takes courage to really say enough is enough. You know, in the recovery world, we say, you know, my best efforts got me here. That's right. You know? And uh, my best efforts got me on my knees. Yeah. And I had to do something different. I remember my first, uh, my first sponsor, because, uh, you know, I went to 12-step mm-hmm. meetings for sure. years, seven yeah. years, I think. Yeah. Um, he used to always say surrender means joining the winning side. That's right. It doesn't mean giving up. On, it doesn't mean giving up. It means giving up on what you thought you were going to exactly. do. Exactly. Exactly. So That I, always stuck with me. Yeah. That's a great saying. Mm-hmm. So the next day, I started calling around, and I joined a mastermind that week um, and um, got, a, got a mentor, a serious mentor. And um, all of a sudden, I turned things around. Hmm. And uh, my wife came back after a short period of time, a week or whatever it was. And um, and we... So this is all in a pretty around. condensed time frame. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, well, condensed, th- this little kind of hitting bottom. Now, I was still, you know, you know, using, you know, prescription drugs. I was still, like, getting Percocet and Vicodin where I could and just oh, to wow. numb the pain. Yeah. And, and that was um, all emotional pain? Or yeah. did you have any, you have no, any no, old, like, physical. residual stuff? Oh, sure. You know, it wasn't until very recently. No, I was always in physical pain. But, always. you know, you, you just learn to deal with it. And you don't even realize that you've got it until it's gone. Like, I had a surgery about a year ago now. Um, I, I had adhesions, you know, from bruising of my interior organs and stuff. And right. it was pretty ugly. Um, but anyway. Um, you learn to live with it. Learn to live with it. But then, you know... When you can't live with it, then you pop a pill or two or three or four or whatever, right. and then you realize you're living in a fog. Oh, you tell, you know? and, and it's so dangerous, too, because that kind of stuff just can really creep up. Um, I, lo- I love to – and thanks for sharing that, sure. by the way. Because yeah. truly, it, it does – it takes courage to to be authentic and say, hey, this is everything about me, warts and all. Yeah. Um, but I feel like, again, especially today, there's more and more – I really love the, the chance – to just talk about whether it's drug use or whether it's uh, sexual stuff or whether yeah. it's uh, crisis of any kind or whether yeah. it's you know suicidal thoughts that somebody has like mm-hmm. I, I I want to be able to bring out yeah. like what's going hey this is a real thing and especially yeah. the leaders and the people you know that that we look up to in our lives and the yeah. people in the media yeah. um, when someone comes out and says hey this is me too yeah. I'm bipolar I'm this or I'm that yeah. and I have these issues right. it, it's like it makes it okay well maybe I'm not that weird i'm not right i'm not doing this i'm not the only one doing this you know listen i don't think that there's i don't know an entrepreneur who's when they're honest saying that they haven't had um suicidal ideations when they've gone through a a downturn right you know when i said that i was on my knees believe me you know it was sitting in front of me um my life insurance policy like i knew i was more i was worth more dead than alive right that's a scary thought too. yeah and um and so i'd had those ideations for sure yeah. Um, and the, the interesting thing was, you know, when that market crashed uh, in 2008, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was at a men's conference in Monterey, and it was about 150 uh, CEOs and business mm-hmm. owners. And it when when it crashed, it was like The Walking Dead. I mean, just this fear on men's faces. And six of those guys took their life in those first six months after oh. it. Um, it happens. You know, when your self-worth is tied to your net worth, right. it's an ugly combination, right? And so thank, thank goodness, you know, um, you know, I had, so this part, it was, it was not an, it was a long process getting here, mm-hmm. but yeah, from December 6th until I was able to turn things around a little bit, at least, at least started working slowly towards where I am today, towards more, uh, more enlightenment and honesty, because I can tell you, even for years, um, you know, ultimately, you know, the marriage didn't work and mm-hmm. a lot of it had to do with me just not being honest about a lot of things with mm-hmm. her. Um, what I realized is that we, she's, uh, you know, amazing in her own way. I'm amazing in my own way, but we never worked on things together, you know? So it was and very, so, uh, two individuals together. Two individuals, exactly. Yeah. And I'd realized that she tried hard to get me to work on stuff and I just wasn't ready yeah. yet, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, it was, a, you know, Thank goodness, you know, we got two amazing kids uh, now, and they're they're absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. I've learned my lessons, um, and I'm all about honesty uh, at this point. You may not like what I say, but I used to, like, not tell her the truth, and a lot of people wouldn't tell them the truth because I was afraid of hurting their feelings or you can't handle it or, you know. Um, you know Classic line, too. Exactly, right? But it's what I learned about is that's on me. That's not on her. I yes. should have been able to deliver the bad news. Um, with love, yeah. you know, instead of with an iron fist. Wow. You know? And so um, I've had to learn, you know, my lessons uh, in that. And uh, thank goodness, you know, she's remarried and happy and, you know, and they provide a great life for my kids. I, I have my kids 50% of the time and they're amazing and I oh, learn from beautiful. them every day. And, um, but, you know, the great news about this is that um, if you want to change, you can change, but it takes guts. It yeah. takes guts. And if you stop, it all ties back to the whole failure thing because at yeah. first I was all about I failed, I've done all this stupid stuff. But really, um, when we look at our failures as really that necessary struggle called learning, mm-hmm. and then it changes our perspective because learning fuels preparation, mm-hmm. right? Preparation is really what fuels courage. Right? You have more courage when you know that you're prepared and courage changes everything. And so I live a more courageous life now. Um, and that requires doing the hard right over the easy wrong, which sometimes means, you that's, know. That's my other quote I uh, I, I love. I, I almost want to tattoo that on me or something. Which I, one's that? What you just said, choosing uh-huh. the hard right over the easy wrong. Yeah, so I can't take credit for that. That is one of the big mantras in the, in the Army. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, I think it's on a, a monument at West Point. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so, yeah, doing the hard right over the easy wrong is a great mantra for any leader. Yes. Right. And um, because too often we're going to do that easy wrong because we don't want to, um, you know, deal with the wrath or the criticism or the mm-hmm. critiques or the, the slings and arrows. But when you do the hard right, ultimately, you know, um, we're all served better right. by that. Let me ask you then, just going back. So the difference between 2001 mm-hmm. and 2008 for mm-hmm. you. What did you learn and what did you apply that was different? Because the crash came again. Yeah, that's right. Right? Six, yeah. seven years later, here we are in the same place. Yeah. yeah. Ha- you have two hotels in 2001. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 
Where where are you in the hotel business by 2008 when 14, that started? 14 hotels. 14 hotels. Yeah, yeah. And all boutique hotels, all, right? That's your whole yeah, business. Yeah, that's right. So what I learned was um, a lot, obviously. Because you clearly did something different. Yeah. Because in 2009, yeah. you didn't end up in the same place you did in early no, 2002, right? No, thank goodness, because the, you know 2008 and nine, through whatever the length of that was, it was the longest downturn that we'd ever had in the deepest, right? The truth is it was a depression. Come on. You know, we, we call it a, the Great Recession, but you know, economists will tell you when you use, look at all the indi- indicators that identify a depression, we are in a depression. Oh, it was well more than 20% drops yeah, all across right, the board. Exactly. So it was a depression. Um, I was when depressed. We, yeah. <laughs> so it was a, <laughs> I lost a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We all did, right? Yeah. Um, so what did I do differently? Well, in 2001, um, we made some decisions like we're not going to let people go. Um, we're not going to cut people's salaries. We so, weren't so doing we the mean, hard right. So Team in 2001, members. you said, I'm not going to do that next time? No, or or you, in 2001, you wouldn't cut people? The reason that 2001 hurt so badly is we didn't lay people off. Oh, you so said, we're not going to do that. We're going we're to stay gonna, We're going to stick it out. You know, because frankly, remember 2001, that, that recession was the longest recession we'd ever had since World War II. Yeah, right? Yeah, so it was deep. Yeah. If it would have been a typical recession that California had seen, most people in California recessions, we're coming out of them before they even know that they're in them. Right. That's how most of the recessions have been. They've been shallow. They've been short-lived. So 2001 was much longer. Yeah. Right? Um, but um, but I did say I'm going to make those hard decisions. Mm. So what I did is um, when, it, when 2008 started rolling around, I could see the writing on the wall. We had just been too good of a run, you know, and we were in a bubble. Yep. And so I put together what I call a recession-resistant business plan. Hmm. And I sent it out to all of our clients. I remember printing it on red paper because back then you couldn't photocopy red paper. I didn't email it to anybody. Um, and I gave it to, no, I say clients, I mean our investors and partners. Okay. And to our, all of our executives. And it was basically a contingency plan that said that if this happens, we're going to respond this way. You when this happens, a contingency plan before the, the recession. 2008 recession. I hit. had a client for I one of our. I don't know. Sorry to interrupt. I don't know how many business owners could claim they actually did that or even thought of it, but that is genius. Yeah. yeah. You saw the writing on the wall and you took your military mm-hmm. expertise and said, well, when this happens, right. what are we going to do? And if That's it doesn't right. happen, you don't have to play it, right? Exactly. Exactly. You don't have to put the plan in action. Exactly. So and I still have, I stumbled across it the other day because um, that's, I'm well, hang on to it. Oh, we're polishing <laughs> it off right now. Let's dust um, it right now. It's 2018 exactly, as we record this. Exactly. So um, I sent that out to some of our clients and investors and all of our executives. And I, I got some angry emails back. In fact, one guy said, you know, like ridiculing, like, what planet are you living on, dude? And you shouldn't even be using this word. As if, like, me doing this was going to make a recession happen, right? <laughs> Don't like, talk not, about it. I'm not manifesting it, dude. I promise you. Say the, but, say the word recession three times in the yeah, mirror and it'll happen. show up at midnight. Exactly. <laughs> so sure enough, and we lived by that, uh-huh. um, and we actually made some of the hard decisions, doing the hard right over the easy wrong. We um, let some non-essential people go. Um, all the executives took pay cuts. We didn't um, we didn't reduce wages. We did a wage wage freeze, but we didn't reduce wages mm-hmm. for our quote unquote line people. But the executives took pay cuts, um, 
and um, we did things like we stopped doing paying for dry cleaning, but instead we didn't, we didn't require you to wear business attire. You could dress business casual. Wow. We, um, so we used to say we want you to dress in suits or whatever. Which and meant we'll, dry cleaning. And we'll play f- pay for your dry cleaning. What a great place to work. Yeah. Well, now, so give me just a rough idea. So across 14 hotels or however many hotels had this, if you cut out the dry cleaning expense, how much are you talking about maybe like annually? Yeah, you're not talking about a lot, you know, probably across all the hotels. You know, it's probably $15,000. <laughs> but you do a lot of those little cuts. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're saving 100 200 300 grand. Well, exactly. Because you got to think about your your sphere of influence, right? Uh, every decision you make impacts people. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember the first time I counted my sphere of influence. Those are the, those are the people that I pay their salaries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then their family members, right? Mm-hmm. But also, if I make a bad decision or a good decision, it also impacts our vendors, Sure, right. Yeah. And all of our sales, all the, those salespeople are on commission, right? Mm-hmm. And so and I all their the, family. Exactly. So the, I remember the first time counting it, it was like 180,000 people. And I thought, holy smokes! Now it's much bigger now. Oh my right? goodness! No, cause, right? Because that ripple goes out, right? Because a guest as well, right? Sure. Who come through. Um, and so I had to start making smart decisions on this. And so we did a bunch of those little things, like, um, you know, we cut back stipends on like meals, for instance, but we stocked our refrigerators with meals that people could pop into the microwave or whatever have there, right? So we did, we traded things you off. You found ways to take care of people, but right. doing we, it in a more cost-effective we, way, it sounds right. like. Right, we, we gave, um, really instead of giving raises, like for that year, I think we gave more time off for oh. people. You could spend it with your family, right? So we did little things like that, and that really made a difference. And so we had very little migration of team members, um, mm-hmm. and we hired people back uh, quickly. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, the hard right over these, you're wrong. That's the difference between 2008 and 2001. Wow. Did you have much, uh, once you started implementing it, did you have much blowback on like uh, team members? Uh, or did most no. people, did they get the vision? They How did saw that work? It. They saw it because we over-communicated it. Once I really mm-hmm. saw this started coming, that's the problem. And we even heard this from banks. Like there was a, a hotel that we ended up doing a deed in lieu mm-hmm. um, instead of uh declaring bankruptcy. Now, the interesting thing was it was the top performing hotel on the market, but we bought it um, at the peak of the market, uh-huh. um, you know, and so we overpaid for it, but um, bought it five years earlier. And so it was now the note was due. It was a five-year note, right? right. And so it was, it was called maturity default. Our debt service coverage ratio was twice what they've been required. We are making money. But in 2009 or eight, no one was loaning on, on hotels. You know, you couldn't raise any more money. So now right? you say, I can't get more money. It hasn't been profitable enough for long enough to be able to, to buy out the debt. And you're not going to be able to renew the note. They said, no way. Yeah. And by the way, I was the personal guarantee on this note, of millions of dollars. Yeah. Right. And so, um, in fact, so we said, okay, bank, we're going to give you the keys back. It's yours. So the bank recognized that we were doing so well that they hired us not only to operate this hotel, but other hotels that they had had. And so, um, and I'd never paid ourselves a fee from it, from the hotel. And all of a sudden we're getting paid to operate a hotel and make money off of, you know, this that we weren't even making money on before. So, so that got you thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There, there might be something here, right? So um, so a bunch of little things started happening, Matt, that just um, 
started reinforcing this. So when when you over so the reason I was going down that road is that there are a lot of business owners who stick their head in the sand, mm-hmm. and the bank was telling this telling us this because we started communicating even with the bank early on, saying, "Hey, we've never missed a payment. We're going to continue to pay you." Um, and they said, they said, well, this is awesome because we have owners who won't even return calls. Um, they're sticking their head in the sand. They've gone dark on us. And so the same thing happened with our team members. We are communicating with them saying, hey, this is about to happen. Make sure we're going to go into a recession. You should be doing the same thing in your life. Right. Like looking at, do you do you have Let's get your memberships? Exactly. Do you have memberships that you're paying for that you're not even using you know, and what we found is, you know, there were people that were able to save a hundred bucks here a month, a hundred bucks mm-hmm. there a month, and all of a sudden they could make ends meet, right? right. And so now I've got this thing called uh, it's uh, basically forty-eight ways to um, improve your cash flow in your life and business. And it's just forty-eight suggestions on things that we're talking about here. You know, like go through your pantry at home, look through your credit card. You know, are you paying for memberships that you know you're not using mm-hmm. any any longer? Um, you know, consolidate debt, that kind of thing. Um, I was shocked last time I did something like that. I went through uh, business and personal credit cards. I'm looking through and I highlighted whatever was repeatable. And I found like three different memberships, true story, after looking at that, three different memberships that I didn't know what they were. Yeah, And it was $47 for this, 97 for that. And it might sound crazy when you think someone hears that and goes, how do you? But when you start adding things in, especially running a business, it's even more. There's so many... Some software I joined, you know, exactly. and I haven't used in a year yeah. and a half. Yeah. yeah. And, and you think you would think to cancel it, but we don't. No. Because yeah. just there's enough money coming in and there's right. enough to do and to focus on. Yeah, it's funny. You know, cash uh, revenue answers a lot of life's problems, but cash also covers a lot of the warts Interesting. That, that we have, right? And so I remember office manager, like Melissa, who you know, um, she was going through a bunch of bills after, shortly after she got here. And, you know, there were like old phone lines that we've been paying for for years that we didn't even use. And, you know, like in short order, she just for the, our home office had saved a few thousand dollars by just, wow. you know, nickels and dimes here and there. Yeah. But all that's it's so all important. real money. I mean, you start, you know, putting the real the value you know, current value of money on this kind of stuff. Like, oh my gosh, if I were to take that thousand dollars and invest it, what could that really create for us? Or who could we actually hire you know, to help us? It's wow. it's real money. Yeah, well, I mean, just like when, when, when you talked about the sphere of influence a moment ago, mm-hmm. the sphere of influence, mm-hmm. and you said, I realized I was reaching 180,000 people. That really puts it in perspective. Yeah. And I haven't done that yet. So I'm, yeah. I'm about to. I'm going to look through with, with, with team members, with... Uh, the students, it, just even in, in the advanced programs, yep. you know, yep. in the masterminds, it's like, okay, well, if I change something or if I fail to change something in, in the right time, who does that affect? And it, it's it's very weighty. It's very, it's very weighty. weighty. And I couldn't, I couldn't even count it now because I did the first time I did the count, I wasn't doing all the TV stuff that I'm doing now, yeah. all the public speaking I'm doing now, um, the books that I write. So words have meaning. Yeah, and this right? is just hotels at this point. Right. And so, I mean, it's millions a year now yeah. that, that I reach, right? And um, this is why I carry on this little pewter globe in my pocket. Um, it just reminds me that of one of my goals, right? You know, like I carry two things in my pocket everywhere I go. Yeah. My special forces coin that reminds me of, you know, the heritage from my, that you know where I came from, in this pewter globe to remind me of my mission that I that I want to make a positive impact on the world through entrepreneurship and leadership. Wow, and um, and it's humbling when you start doing this count. It's like, oh my gosh, like I really could do this. You know, we're really only two degrees away from 
impacting a billion people. Isn't that insane? Right? Because like, each of us come in contact with about a thousand people in our lifetime, like where you really make an impact. Yeah. Right? That's the yeah. average. You and I have a bigger, bigger than that. But let's say the average person. If those thousand people learn something from us and then they go out and touch a thousand people. Right. And then that happens again. It's, it's a, billion a billion people. Wow. There's not that many people in the world. There's not that many people in the world. That's incredible. Isn't it crazy when you start thinking about it that way? Yeah, that, that is crazy. Yeah, I think I feel like we should start a really good MLM. Me and you, <laughs> me and you, we're gonna just the message will be touch a thousand people who yeah. then get a thousand people, a billion. Yeah, isn't that you'll be a ruby before you know it? Exactly. That's the message that they preach, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh. All you got to do is this. That's awesome. Well, you, you mentioned too the reach on TV. Now I wanted to ask you about this because this is something. Um, I don't know. I think in society we're like enamored with the idea of TV, and oh, yeah. but also personally, I kind of am too. Like yeah. the moment I hear, I'm like, wait a minute, you're the guy in TV. Yeah. So you've been doing the hotels obviously for years at this point. Yeah. How did because uh, you've done several uh, uh, shows of Hotel Impossible on mm -hmm. the Travel Channel? Right. How did that first come about? How did they reach out uh, to you? Did funny. you reach out to them? I have never reached out for any of that the TV stuff, and I also do a bunch of stuff on MSNBC. You do, yeah, um, repeatedly CNN on, on and, business yeah, and entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's right. Leadership. Right. I've never gone after those things. So how did uh, how did the Hotel Impossible thing yeah. happen? So here's the funny thing: when you live a life of excellence, like mm -hmm. I had said before, you have a rep. It's called a reputation. Yeah, your reputation precedes you. It does, doesn't it? You know, and so people have always come to us on these first times. So um, I remember the first time I got the call. So the the the, the host of this show is called Anthony Mercury. His name his name he's the creator of the show. Yeah, and. Um, and everybody in the hotel industry knows this guy, you know. Now, and we're, be, we're now really good show, friends. Before the show, had he been around in the industry mm -hmm. also quite yeah. a bit? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he uh, turned around uh, the Algonquin Hotel in New York, which is a landmark hotel there. Um, he helped create and open Nickelodeon Hotel. He was he became known in the industry as, as a turnaround artist. He okay. could turn hotels around and, and do great things there. So a lot like, like a Gordon Ramsay where exactly. like, they made a show around what he was mm -hmm. already doing. Exactly. Because okay. yep. I didn't know the whole backstory. Yep. So um, I had an assistant at the time who walked into my office and said, there's a guy named Anthony Melchiori on the phone and wants to talk to you. And I said, what? Are you serious? <laughs> and so I get on the phone, and Anthony didn't say hello, didn't say anything. And this is class. And we are really good friends right now. So, Anthony, if you're listening, shout out to your brother. He's I also he is. He's also a veteran, by the way. He, he didn't say hi, right, Anthony? He's, the first thing he said is, who the hell are you? <laughs> 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 he was doing a hotel in Hollywood, <laughs> and, and, and he you? said um, he did. He was kind of stumped, didn't know how to turn this thing around. And he said he had called a bunch of people, and every person he called from JMBM, which is the largest hotel attorney law firm in the in the world, um, the California Lodging uh, Association, and a couple other big name people in the industry. And, they, and he said, "Who can I call to help?" And he said, "Every one of them said you first. He said. Who the hell are you, and why haven't I heard heard about you before? Um, he said, but everybody loves you and wants you uh, to, to be involved with this. Wow. And so your reputation precedes you. Now, if wow. I had been a schmuck and didn't do all that hard stuff that I had talked about, had not yeah. had this tenacious attitude, um, had given up when the going got tough, mm -hmm. um, then I would never have had the opportunity to go on the show and help turn this hotel around, um, or had been back on the show a bunch of times over the uh, following few seasons, 
right? So cool. So and every season, a, we, do you tend to do an episode or two I do, every season? Yeah, I do a few episodes a season, yeah. That it's, is so it's, cool. So it's a lot of fun. And, um, so tell me about that experience a little bit. What, what, what was it like going there for the first time? Are you? Is it mm-hmm. mostly like TV stuff, or is it mostly behind the scenes? Like you're really going in and working on this hotel for a week? Yeah, yeah. so we go in for a week. Um, and uh, so the, the first time I went in, and Anthony said, hey, let's walk through this hotel. Okay, what do you think? And I just started naming off, well, there's all these problems. And I said, but it all comes down to – so here's, here's – you know, we talked about the executive program at Stanford mm-hmm. first, right, earlier on. So one of my professors used to say this all the time, and he pounded it into our head. He said, listen, in business, you're, you're a leader, you're an entrepreneur, really you're a, you're a problem solver. Right. That's really what it comes down to. And there are four problems in business that he would speak to all the time. People, product, process, and profit. Mm-hmm. Those are the four things. And, and he was right. I took it a step further in all of my writings, and I said, okay, so people, product, process, and profit. If you have a product, process, or profit problem, you have a people problem. Mm-hmm. People aren't working in their strengths, right? You got an attitudinal problem, morale, right? If you got a bad leadership problem, it's a people problem. You got yeah. turnover, right? They're all people problems. Sure. And so as we were walking through, I said, well, there's a leadership issue here. And so because of all that kind of stuff, we immediately hit it off. We saw eye to eye. And he goes, he goes, my producers don't see it that way, and you're absolutely right. And so what do you think we ought to do? And so it just became fun. So, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes. And I can tell you on this show in particular, none of it is staged. They can't even show you all the nonsense that happens. Really? Some of the, yeah, some of, it's ab- some of them, not all, some of them are absolute train wrecks. Now, some of the people are, are loving, wonderful people who are just in over their head. Yeah, they just don't sure. have the experience that we've talked about yeah. earlier. They've been successful in one industry, and they think, well, gosh, I made you know six million bucks in telecom. How hard could it be to run a hotel? But It'll they be forget. my dream. It's like exactly. a big bed and breakfast. I've stayed in a bunch of hotels. How hard could it be? <laughs> right? I've eaten a lot of food. I should open a restaurant. Exactly. We hear it all the time. But they forget that there are, no, it's not rocket science, but there are a million little decisions that need to be made yeah. every day. And you better know how to lead people. Mm-hmm. Um, and please people and I always be a little bit codependent like my happiness is based on your happiness you're in the hospitality industry for crying out loud well, I remember too one, one of the episodes I saw with you that I really enjoyed the, this this bit that you shared right away when you met the owners you said listen you have to decide oh. are you going to be hotel owners or hotel operators that was the very first episode I ever did that was the first one ever yeah well you did well in it thank you I lo- but that, what a great question truly for any business that's right I think there's a lot of maybe entrepreneurs and I say a lot I don't know what you know there's people mm-hmm. that that maybe you look at I want to have the, I want to own a business and they're in love with the idea of owning a business but they're not in love with the idea of running a business because yeah. yeah. even even a business my size which is much much different than, than what you're running with the hotel business mm-hmm. and everything else and mm-hmm. you gozy and all the stuff that you do yeah. um, it's still like the the day to day of running a business and running a you know working with a small team and and, and bills and accounting yeah. and taxes and, and right. roof repairs and and whatever it is yeah. there's most of the work is just this day-to-day that's the same for every industry for the most part. It is. It's a beautiful grind, mm-hmm. but it's a grind. That's right. Shout out to Nate and Jason if you're listening right now. Yeah. That's it's a, a beautiful yeah. grind. Yeah, the beautiful grind. Yeah. It, no, it absolutely it really is. is. Yeah, it, it really is, and you better love it because if you don't love it, it will suck the lifeblood yeah. out of you. And this is when people get resentful and angry, and they start lashing out at their team members and lashing out at their uh, customers. By the way, Matt, I am on a mission to change the terminology in business. Um, I think the, the short-sightedness is that we call the people who do transactions with us customers. Yep. That's a transactional mm-hmm. you know, thing. 
and I would rather us call them clients. Mm-hmm. Clients are relational. Like yes. we're building a long-term relationship with these right. people. And we had more clients and fewer customers that are transactional. You gotta keep replacing customers. Right. Clients come back over and over again because they've right. had a great experience with, with you, right? Well, and just like team versus an employee. Exactly. Right? An, an employee is someone who I work for you. Or like your dad would say, you work for the man. Yeah, right. You know, right. nobody wants to work for the man. Right. And, and like I said, words have meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're right. So that was the first experience where I said to, I did say to them, do you want to be a hotel owner? Or do you want to be a hotel operator? Right. And what was their answer? I want to be a hotel owner. Yeah. They said, we love the idea. We want to own this hotel. <laughs> right. Great. Let us. Let yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, and, and, and and that saves a lot of, of heartache down because you could have spent the entire week trying to teach them how to operate a hotel, but you saw right away it was like you don't want this. Exactly. Yeah. Right? If we went in and tried to teach them everything, and they didn't want to know this stuff, it's a waste of everybody's time. Right. Right. And so there's a guy named Bob Beal out there who's got this. Uh, he's he's an early mentor who, who said, you know, if you want profound answers, you got to ask profound questions. Hmm. Right. That's good. And so that's the thing I think that as leaders we need to know how to write, ask the right questions. Sure. So that's why I asked that. Mm. What, what do you, What do you want out of this? Right. And I think it's the same thing when we ask our team members. You know, what do you want? Why are you here? What do you want to accomplish? Right. Right. And um, words are important. Speaking of which, you have a new book mm. that came out just recently. Yeah. And talk about words. I love the the title Victory. Seven Revolutionary Strategies for Entrepreneurs to Launch Your Business, Elevate Your Impact, and Transform Your Life. It's a long subtitle, but it's yeah. A, it's a very detailed subtitle. Yeah. But again, to your point, words are important, right? Yes. So tell me about uh, about the book Victory, um, the Seven Revolutionary Strategies for Entrepreneurs. Mm. We, we are, uh, as we're kind of getting to the twilight of the interview, yeah, we're starting to, to wrap, believe it or not, because... Mm-hmm. I can't believe how much time has flown. I'm afraid to even ask. <laughs> it's, it's almost that time. Okay. It's almost that time. Um, what, what's, where do I start? Because I love the mm-hmm. idea. I love victory. Uh, where'd you get the idea for the cover? So yeah. if you like go, I'll put a link in the yeah. uh, show notes okay. to the, to the book and, and, and to your website and everything. So you can follow Larry. Uh, but right now, either check the show notes and click or like look for victory, Larry Broughton. Yeah. Um, where'd you get the idea for the coverage? This is so cool. Well, I think that if once you get into it and you actually read uh, the introduction and the there's a chapter called Freedom Road mm-hmm. uh, in it, um, I talk about uh, capitalism and the free market. Okay. That I think that more positive has been done through the free market economy and capitalism than anything else. Sure. Um, and uh, we don't hear about it enough, but uh, the amount of like poverty and uh, hungry hunger and homelessness in the world has been uh, slashed because of capitalism, because of free market, because of growing entrepreneurship around the world. Um, And so the cover is really a takeoff of a former Soviet propaganda poster, (laughs) the antithesis of capitalism. Interesting. And and I I was very intentional about creating something uh, like that that we're really, it's about victory, right? And so the word victory is actually an acrostic. Uh, so most of the chapters in the book uh, start with that letter. So V is for vision, I is for intel, C is for coaching, oh, T, awesome. T is for teamwork, O is for operations and systems, R is for rapid action, right? Because there's a lot of people who think they want, they, they're entrepreneurs, they dream of doing stuff, but they don't take rapid action. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes is by General George Patton that says a good plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan next week. And I think that that, that speaks to like the big mo- momentum, right? It does. Um, and then why is for you. Mm. All of this stuff that we talked about, if you aren't 
trying to become a better version of yourself, then all of this is worthless. Mm -hmm. You're gonna be like me and make the classic mistakes I have and burn through a marriage, have you know broken bodies in your wake, mm -hmm. um, unless you become a better version of yourself. And um, we know a lot of entrepreneurs, like we were talking about earlier, um, who have taken their own life or overdosed accidentally or whatever it is because um, they focus their energy and time on stuff that's not as important as actually becoming a better version of who we are. Sure. One of the things I try to remind people all the time is if you want to do great things, you got to be a great person. Mm -hmm. And the good thing is if you're alive, you can still improve. That's right. You can still become a better version of yourself. And so um, this is really a call to arms, a call to action for uh, what I call the entrepreneurial revolution mm -hmm. because I believe that it's the entrepreneur who is going to ch change the trajectory um, of our country and of the world. It's not going to be politicians or it's going to be very few politicians who are just mealy-mouthed, say you know, what they need to say to get reelected and not make those hard decisions we were talking about earlier. And um, so it's kind of a, a manifesto. In some ways, it's a Jerry Maguire moment Mm. Uh, for me for you yeah and um who's and coming with me exactly who's coming with me and um so that's what victory is all about well if you are listening and you are the renee zellweger to this jerry <laughs> mcguire <laughs> and you are ready to come on this victory um yeah. grab the book it's uh you can find it wherever books are uh yeah. it, it, it's it's amazing um i'm working my way through it yeah. uh, i love it you came when you spoke last time on stage. Yeah. You had just, because it is brand new, you yeah. just released April, it. It was in a pre-release. Yeah, right. And uh, so that's, it's so, so exciting. Yeah. Um, how uh, Are you loving it so far? Has it been? Absolutely loving it. We're about to go on a media tour, oh, a cool. national media tour uh, around it. And thank you to your, uh, to you and your tribe and a bunch of others out there because it launched at number one. Um, I was very nervous because wow. that morning, it, was, it had been number one for about four days prior to the launch. And then, Something that happened in that morning is at number two. It's like no number one. No number two is not winning. Number two is <laughs> losing. Spoken as a green beret. There is only winning. I love but that. But it did end up launching. I think in eight different categories. I love it that. Was number one. So thank you. Um, so uh, final question. Yeah. Final question. If you could talk to, give advice to a eighteen-year-old you, hmm. just before you walked in the armory recruiter's office or the. Uh, wherever that was, the, yeah. the Army uh, uh, t uh, Martial Arts Office. <laughs> <laughs> Recruiter's Office, yeah. Yes. yeah. But if you could give advice to an 18-year-old you, what would you say? And is there anything you would change or would you keep it all the same? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, I think I would say um, don't worry about the smart people. Hmm. I used to think that if uh, you were smart, then you are going to succeed. Um, but that's really not the case. It's the people who work in their strengths that succeed. Right. And um, what I learned in Special Forces um, that I didn't know when I was 18 and 19 years old was that those organizations that succeed are those that get everyone working inside their strengths. You don't need to be the most brilliant person uh, out there to actually succeed. But if you mm. have a vision for what you want your life to be and you're tenacious about going after that vision and you... Um, Stop subscribing to the Rambo lone wolf myth that you can do it by yourself. Um, and you surround yourself with people um, who are bolder and brighter than you are. You're going to do great things uh, in, in the world. There's a book by Daniel Goldman that came out, I don't know how many years ago now, um, called uh, Emotional Intelligence. Yes. And those studies, have, his research showed that um, it wasn't the people who were the valedictorians of the school who went on to do great things. 
It was the people who knew how to get along with people, who knew, knew how to overcome adversity, um, who were problem solvers um, that actually end up becoming the titans of industry and the, the leaders of the world. Wow. So don't worry that um, you barely graduated high school. Have a vision, persevere, drive on. Wow. Larry Broughton, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it, brother. You're so awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much, Larry, for coming in. See, I told you. I told you that was going to be a really, really good interview, and and I, I believe it was. We went longer. It was one of the longer interviews I've done, I think, on the podcast ever. And um, so excited for that. I had a blast. It was really cool also to be able to have Larry come in studio and hang out here. Uh, his office is just over in Anaheim in Orange County, and I'm in Costa Mesa. So um, it was great to have someone like that, you know, come down to my neck of the woods, my little humble office, and uh, and record the interview together. Um, phenomenal dude. Really, really cool insights, I thought. Make sure, if you haven't already, you know, grab his book, uh, Victory, the Seven uh, Revolutionary Strategies for Entrepreneurs. Uh, it's a very long subtitle, so I won't repeat it, but it's in the show notes. So make sure you check out Larry's book. And check out my book, The Firebox Principle. Um, it's almost set in the next few weeks. The website will be finished and up, and I'll have my, the quiz getting up there pretty quickly here. But if you want to right now, if you want to get updates on the book, you can head over to fireboxbook.com, and you can hit subscribe for updates. And what will happen is as I get things done, as I get a cover finished, which is almost done, I'll send to the people who subscribe for updates, and I'll send you the, the cover uh, art first so you can see what it looks like. Um, when we get the forward finished, I'll, I'll, I'll put that up there somewhere so you can you know, get a glimpse and get an idea. If I do any special trainings, that'll go up right away. When we have a pre-release, we're going to do a book signing party at the office, uh, and we're also going to do one, a special entrepreneur event in Michigan. So we're going to have two spots. Uh, I'll let you know about that. I'm also speaking in August uh, in Utah with Kirk Cameron. I'm keynoting the stage with him, and I'm going to bring my book there, and the publisher's coming out. We're going to have a, a really cool book signing uh, day in Utah. So um, a lot of fun stuff coming up. So head to fireboxbook.com, and you can subscribe for updates there. Um, that's it for this week. Have an amazing weekend. Make sure it's, uh, it's exciting. It's blessed. Go live your life. Go build your business. Don't let the motivation that hopefully Larry and I got for you uh, dwindle. Let it uh, burn a fire in your gut to get out there and go build something. Go do something. Uh, take the shot in life and business. Don't hold back. And I will see you next week on the podcast. Thanks so much.